you're in the family room, we want to say an extra special welcome to you guys. We are glad that you're joining us right now, and uh, welcome to Lakeside Church. I had the chance to speak uh, a few weeks ago, and if you were here, I showed this video clip of the famous 1980 ice hockey game, uh, USA versus Russia, where they beat them. It was amazing, and that was at the beginning of the Sochi Olympics that I shared that. Now it's over, and there's no gold medal this year. Very, very sad. There was a, a, a cool shootout, and, uh, and the women's ice hockey team, oh, heartbreaker, right? Second Olympics in a row, they lose to their big rival, which is Team Canada. And what makes it worse is that they had it in the bag right at the end of the game, these two goals. In fact, at one point, Canada wanted to score so, so bad, and they did. They pulled their goalie, which happens, and uh, sometimes when that happens, the, the, team, uh, the other team can hit it all the way down the ice rink, and, it, and it'll go in, and the U- Team USA almost did that. It came, in fact, I think we have a little video clip of that for you guys here. L- watch this, and so they pulled their goalie, and it goes down, and oh, just a bit outside, and it's right there, I mean, an inch to the right, and it's going to go in. I mean, how close can you get? That would have wrapped up the gold medal. Look at that. You know, this is a perfect example of the fact that sometimes almost just hurts. (laughs) You know, you get really, really close, but not quite there. Let me ask you this morning, when when or where in your life do you experience almost? Almost is that, you know, it's that project that's just not quite finished. Or almost is a truth that's been twisted just a little bit and it's really not a truth anymore. It's really just a lie. Almost is that job or that promotion that you didn't quite get or that house that you didn't quite get. And almost hurts and, and, and really it becomes most painful in the areas of life that matter most to us, like our relationships. Some of you may experience almost in your marriage or in your parenting or in your friendships. Almost is a, is a dream that you've, you've felt and you're right close to it, but it just doesn't quite get fulfilled. Sometimes almost just hurts. I mean, wouldn't it be great if everything was perfect and we were perfect and everything was whole and holy and righteous and great? I mean, that would be phenomenal. And that's the picture that the scriptures give to heaven. I don't know if you know this, but heaven isn't going to be like floating around with some bodiless spirits playing harps on clouds. That's not what it's about. Heaven is this real sink your teeth into it idea. It's this physical idea that you will actually be the most amazing version of you that you could possibly imagine. This is the way to think about it. If you've ever been to the hospital and you've met somebody or you see somebody in the hospital there, you're visiting somebody, and people will say about somebody that's really, really sick, they'll say they're just a shadow of what they once were. Well, we are just shadows of what we will one day be. I mean, and the new creation starts now and we're on our way, but we're not there yet. It's sort of like we are almost. And so we're, we're waiting. We're waiting on this journey. And as we wait, you know, we don't just kind of twiddle our thumbs. We don't just kind of sit around. As Brad talked about last week, it's about just humble mercy. It's this idea from Micah 6, 8, that we act justly, that we love mercy, and we walk humbly with our God. But almost can, can be frustrating sometimes. 
And so the scriptures talk about us in, in this idea that, that we're almost, but they also talk about us in this idea that we're also the children of God. If we follow Jesus, there's this identity that he gives us, and it's phenomenal. Sometimes the word is, is, is uh, by the biblical writers, is, is called saints. You are saints. You are followers of Jesus. You are, you are children of God. And, and there's this other word that they use, it's sanctified, it's sort of this religious word, but it basically means to be set apart as holy or sacred for God's intentional purposes. If you follow Jesus, you have been given a mission in life. You have been given a specific purpose in life. And the way that we talk about that mission at Lakeside Church is we say that we are on a mission to transform as many people as possible into passionate and productive followers of Jesus. We are on a mission. And we want to see transformation because it's really about life change. If life change isn't happening, then quite frankly, why do we meet? Why do we go through all of this stuff? It's really just cold, dark religion if lives are not being transformed. And so we're about transformation and we're about as many people as possible. It's not because we want to be the biggest church on the block. It's not about that. It's not about this specific number that we just have to get to. But when we break it down, when we break as many as possible down just to the individuals, every individual is somebody's spouse or somebody's child or somebody's friend. And then all, all of a sudden, as many people as possible means a whole lot to us. And we want to see passion. Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Passion is the fuel in our tanks. It's the wind in our sails. And so we want to follow after God with passion. This is a mission that we think is amazing. And we want to see productive followers of Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples, I've sent you that you would go and bear much fruit. And I want that fruit to remain and that's what we want to see at Lakeside Church. We believe it is a mission that is worthy to give our lives to. And at the same time, we're almost. We're not perfect. And so we work on this and we stumble at times and we, and we struggle through it at times to stay on track at times. But the scriptures call us saints. You can almost say that we are saint almost. You know, because there is some trouble with Christians. If you haven't noticed, if you've gone into a church lately, sometimes there's trouble with Christians. And so what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks, and, and actually we're going to end up talking about the resurrection uh, on Easter weekend. But we're going to work through this book that Paul wrote to the ancient church in the city of Corinth, 1 Corinthians. And he writes this letter, and they're having all sorts of problems, and, and people... Um, from Corinth go to Paul and they send him a letter and they say, help us with the problems that we're having. And as we walk through this book, I know that it's going to be encouraging for us. Hebrews says to encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that we won't fall to the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is so deceitful. There are so many things that can knock us off balance. And so encouragement is powerful for us. I believe that this little study in 1 Corinthians is going is to give us hope. And over the next 10 years in this new chapter of Lakeside Church, we're going to need hope at times. Some of you today, that's what you need is hope. 
And it's going to give us direction. It's going to keep us on track as we kind of go through this. We're not going to go through verse by verse, but we're going to go through kind of theme by theme. And so I want to invite you to be here as we walk through this series called Saint Almost. In fact, if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's some seat Bibles around you. And uh, if you don't have one, we'd love for you to take that if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures. And uh, I I, I think it's going to be really encouraging. And as you're turning there... Um, I want to just share maybe a little background on this city. It was basically a, a very metropolitan area. It's a port city. There's all sorts of goods and services available. The ancient city of Corinth is a little bit like, you know, New York or L.A. or San Francisco or maybe Chicago. It's a, it's a melting pot. It's diverse. They're racially diverse and they're religiously diverse In fact, archaeologists have discovered almost all 24 of the major religious mentions by the ancient chroniclers of temples and shrines and kind of holy sites. And so it's it's an area that's been excavated in in great detail. And it's a a city that, that we think was very, very influential and powerful, and it had a lot of money, especially at the top. There was great, great wealth at the top of the society. It also had a ton of widespread poverty and all of the problems that come with that. The Corinthians had a reputation, and it wasn't a good one. They had a reputation of being a very immoral people. And, and there was slave trade, and there was sexual slave trade, something that our world is waking up to these days more than ever. And so it was an interesting, uh, large population. There were people that uh, were coming and going. There were people that were trying to have their dreams fulfilled. And they thought, man, if I just go over to Corinth, I can make it. The Athenians didn't like them because during the time of Paul, the apostle, uh, they were actually more popular than Athens. And so uh, this is the city that Paul is writing to. And he begins to write to this little church, and he starts off, follow me in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul called to me an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul was called to be an apostle. He was the least likely person to be called to be an apostle, a leader of the early church. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a part of the Pharisees that were very aggressive. There was your live and let live Pharisees, and then there was your we're going to turn the world upside down and kill you Pharisees. This was Paul. Paul was going after Christians, and he was putting them in prison, and he was traveling to another town, and Jesus gets a hold of his life, radically changes it, turns it upside down, and now he's the leader, one of the major influencers of this new movement that they called the Way and came to be known as Christians in the early part of the very beginning of this new chapter in our world. It says, called, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sothenes. Paul lived in community. He, was, he always had other people around him to do the journey with. Verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified. And, and, and essentially this idea of being sanctified, as I said, it's the idea that you have been called and set apart for this purpose. And this is who Paul is writing to. Sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere, and that includes us, who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And he says, grace to you and peace, uh, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way. 
with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed in the Greek apocalypse, apocalypti. It's the revelation, it's the unveiling of Jesus. This is the way the early church talked about that thin layer between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. One day the layer will be removed and Christ will be revealed and everything will change. And they were waiting for that. Verse 8, he will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so as Paul opens up this letter, the very first thing he does is he reminds the Corinthians of their identity. This is a church, and we're going to see over the next several weeks that they had gotten off track. They had all sorts of problems. And again, they're sending a letter to Paul, and they're sending people to Paul and going, help us with what we're struggling with. But Paul reminds them right off the bat, you're children of God. Your identity is fixed. That's who you are. Never forget it. And we need to remember that as well as we follow Jesus. And then he encourages them. He he tells them that he's thankful for them. These are people that Paul loved. He spent two years starting this church and working for it, sacrificing for it, watering this church and growing it. And now he's off somewhere else and he hears that they're in trouble. He loves these people. And he's thankful for them. He encourages them because he acknowledges uh, their giftedness and the fact that they are such a talented church and they have all the gifts that they need to be the church in the time that they lived. Paul says you're fully equipped. God has called you. Be the church. And then he talks about God's faithfulness to them and how that faithfulness would be true all the way to the end. It's a no matter what faithfulness. In another another letter, Paul will tell Timothy that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. He doesn't deny his own character. His character is faithful and true no matter what. And I believe that if Paul were writing a letter like this to Lakeside Church, he would say all the same things to us. And I think it's good just to pause and to acknowledge that Lakeside Church has been pushing pretty hard lately. If you've been around Lakeside, our staff has been pushing extremely hard for a few months. And this last six weeks, it's kind of come to a head. And we've been pushing in this thing called Next 10 about unleashing generosity to change our world. And even over the last six to eight months, it's just amazing to look back and see the things that God has been doing among Lakesiders. And I just want to tell you from the staff, I get to spend most of my days. My, uh, a huge part of my job is to interact and work with our leaders and our staff. And from my heart, I just want to say, I am thankful for you. Brad and I talk about that all the time, and, and our staff talks about it. If you could hear the conversations, we are thankful for Lakeside Church. 
And I think about some of the highlights over the last six to eight months, certainly not all of them, but a few of them. Last summer, we had this amazing time where we saw uh, thousands of people come onto our campus. We, we see that every year. It's our summer camp for kids, and it's called Blitz. And get ready, because it's coming again on the 15th. We're going to have Blitz Rewind, and we're planning for this coming summer. And last summer, it was probably our largest and most impactful Blitz. I was talking to Ramey Romer, who leads that initiative, and she was saying that Blitz is really like five camps in one. I I mean, there is something for everybody as we do this journey together, uh, seeing children's lives change and parents' lives change. And it's just an amazing thing that we get to experience. Last fall, we had this series called Text, and I watched as many of you began to interact with the scriptures in a new and fresh way. For some of you, it was a reminder of how to read the scriptures, and for others of you, it was for the first time, and you began to read your Bibles more effectively. And some of you got into small groups, and you started to read in community, which is one of the most effective ways to read the scriptures. I watched last Christmas as so many of you invited your oikos, that extended household of 8 to 15 or so people that God has sovereignly placed you in to be a part of, and how you invited them to hear the love and the grace of God that's been poured out on us through his son, Jesus. Along the way, we've had a couple baptisms. Last fall, I got to baptize my 15-year-old daughter, and it was amazing. It was a fun time for us as a family as we get to hear the stories of life change and what God is doing in people's lives. And just to see Lakesiders do this journey of giving themselves to others and, and, and helping others begin in faith and to belong to community and to become more like Jesus. And I just want to say thank you. Way to go, Lakesiders. And, and, and it all sort of came to this moment last week. And if you were here, it was amazing. And I got to be in all five of our gatherings and watch Lakesiders fill out these cards and come forward and just say, I'm going to pray for the next, uh, next three years about this next 10 initiative. And I'm going to sacrificially give. And, and here's what we're going to do. And it was really incredible. In fact, I actually know the amount of our first fruits offering. I don't know if you want to know it. I know it. Do you want to know it? Are you interested in this at all? It's incredible. We gave last weekend just about $450,000 in one weekend. Way to go, Lakeside Church. And I got on the phone with Mary Beth. She called me and she said, Sean, I am smiling so much. I can't stop smiling. My face hurts so much from smiling. And she got to tell her leaders there in Malawi, Africa, about the fact that this dream is going to come true to see lives change there. And we got a couple pictures. This is the land that they're going to buy. And we've already transferred $200,000 into their account. They're going to buy this land. And they're going to build a wall around it. And they're going to build a school. And lives are going to be transformed. God is up to some amazing things at Lakeside Church right now, and we're just beginning. In a couple weeks, Brad's going to share about uh, the commitments and, and, and how much was committed, and I'm excited about that, and people are still jumping on board. But the reality is, is that we're just beginning, and all sorts of things are going to happen over the next decade. Ten years is a long time. Some of you won't be around. You're going to be with the Lord in ten years. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen in our lives in the next ten years. And we're just starting off on this journey. And so I believe to be a missional church in the 21st century, we need the Holy Spirit's power. And one of the ways that the Holy Spirit works is through His Word. 
He guides us. He directs us. He coaches us. He convicts us. And these are the kinds of things that Paul is doing for this little band of believers in the ancient city of Corinth. He's going to coach them, and and he's going to encourage them, and he's going to confront them about where they've gotten out of bounds. Because sometimes the church isn't saint almost, it's saint not even close, right? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we just got some problems. And, And the next 10 years will be very, very interesting. There's some things that I think we will see for sure. For example, I do believe that we will have spiritual attack. It's already been going on. Now, I'm not a demon behind every rock kind of a guy, but the scriptures tell the story of a radical evil that exists, that we have a real enemy. Paul talks about that that in Ephesians 6, how we have to be prepared for that, and that is a reality. And then sometimes we're just going to trip ourselves up because we got this thing wrong with us. We're almost, we have this sin, and it just kind of gets us sometimes. God uh, came and told Cain in Genesis chapter 4 that sin was crouching out the door, and its desire is to have you, but you must master it. The writer of Hebrews says, lay aside that sin that so easily entangles and fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Sometimes it's going to be our own sin that trips us up. Sometimes it's going to be because we just live in a broken world and we're going to need to sing the song that David wrote in Psalm 23. Maybe for you, some of you, you need to sing that song today where David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they, they comfort me. And you're going to need to sing that song. We're going to need to sing that song over the next 10 years. But I believe as we journey through this book of 1 Corinthians that it's going to be encouraging, it's going to be hopeful, and it's going to give us a sense of direction as well. One of the things, uh, right from the beginning, uh, right in the first chapter, one of the big problems that this church was having was in this area that's a critical area, but it's the area of unity. Paul is writing to a divided church. And it's gotten so bad that they've asked Paul to help them. Some have, some have been concerned about it, and they said, Paul, you got to help us out because we're messing up here. And one of the reasons why the church was divided was because they lived in a culture that was radically divided, and they're beginning to mirror the culture. The culture is affecting the church instead of the church affecting the culture. And one of the reasons why the Corinthian culture was so divided and fragmented was because of this one little thing that had become so important to this society. And that little thing, which became a huge thing, is status. Believe it or not. Status. This was a status-driven culture. And it was driven by status because if you had status, then you had access to all sorts of things. First of all, if you had status, you got all sorts of perks. This was a place where you could get your hand on any good or service that you wanted. And if you had status, status, things were just given to you. Some of you will watch the Academy Awards tonight. And I don't know if you know this, but anybody that's nominated for an Academy Award, they get a swag bag. And this year, the swag bag is worth $85,000. I mean, imagine if they pulled those together, sold them on eBay, and they unleashed their generosity to change the world. Holy moly. But that's what status brings you, right? Status brings you perks, and you get things through status. Another thing that they got in ancient Corinth was they got honor. And this is an honor-shame culture. 
Nobody wants shame in this culture. Worst thing possible was to experience shame. And so you would either follow somebody of high status or you tried to become a person of high status so that you could have that connection so that you would have honor. Another thing that status would bring you is it would give you an advantage. It would give you um, an advantage in court or political advantages. If you were connected to a person of high status or if you were a person of high status and you went into the court, you got special treatment. And finally, another thing that made status probably most important was the power. If you were a person of high status, you had power and you had influence and you had access to decision-making, which actually would help keep you in high status. And so it was radically important to them. This is the church that Paul is writing to. And so just stay with me a little bit. I want to give you sort of the socioeconomic breakdown of how this worked in the ancient world. And so there's a little pyramid up here, and there was different classes and different levels. And I don't know if you know this, but one-third of the ancient world is made up of slaves right away. This is the backbone of the economy. These are all the people that do most of the work. And sad, but it's true. This is how it worked. Most of the people depended upon this system. Now, once in a while, a slave could, could, could go free. You, you might purchase your freedom, or you might have an owner that let you go free. If you escaped and didn't get crucified and caught, then, uh, then, then yeah, then maybe you were free. Actually, there was a law that if, if an owner of a slave had a sick slave, and they put it out onto the street, um, put this person out onto the street, and they, die, and they didn't die, then that owner couldn't own that slave anymore. That slave could go free, and they would join the next kind of class up called the freedmen. And if you were a freedman, then you could actually be a citizen. You could actually vote. You couldn't hold office, but you could vote. And Corinth was sort of this epicenter. Because of all the economy there, it was like a magnet for this class of people called the freedmen. Now, being a freedman was pretty risky because you were on your own. And actually what would happen is a lot of people would sell themselves back into slavery so they were guaranteed food and shelter and clothing. And so then that was the next class. And then the next class sort of up are the common people. This is sort of like the ancient middle class. And, and, and these people uh, were business owners. Some of them just, just working farmers trying to, trying to make ends meet paycheck to paycheck, trying to feed their family. Some of them, if they were really, really successful, they could maybe make it up into the top two levels if they were really lucky. And really in the top two levels are the rich. And the thing that differentiated the top two levels wasn't their wealth necessarily, but it was this issue of status. And in a city, which we think probably had about 750,000 people, about two to 300 were in the high status group. And the way that you got to be in the high status group is really interesting. Basically, whoever had the biggest posse got the highest status. In other words, they called them patrons. So if you had more patrons, if you had more people connected to you, to you, if you had more people following you, then you had higher status. But the way in which you got people to follow you is really interesting. It's because you had this ability to stand up in public and debate. Think Acts chapter 17 when, when it says that Paul went into Athens and he met a bunch of people that were just kind of around and all they did all day long was talk about the latest ideas and they would talk about theology and philosophy and economy and all sorts of things. And if you could do that, if you were a master of rhetoric and you could win in a public debate, then you would steal some of your opponent's patrons 
And the more patrons you had, the higher status you had. And so it was this constant thing where you got to make sure that you have the biggest posse and you're feeding them and taking care of them and they're watching you go against the other people. This is the crazy world that this early church is born in, in which they live in. And Paul's writing this letter to them about this, this divided, fragmented, unfair, unjust society. But Paul writes to them, and he tells them to be the church. Don't be the culture, be the church. Look down in verse 10. It says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, and this is a strong appeal coming from their spiritual father. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you. Instead, Paul tells them to be perfectly united in mind and thought, and that takes a lot of work and dialogue. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, there was a church that met in Chloe's household, probably a very large household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. I mean, if you're going to have a status person, a high status person in the early church, why not choose Paul? I mean, he was, he was way up there, right? I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Apollos was known for being a dynamic and powerful speaker. He would speak and argue about things in public, and he would always win. So people were following Apollos. Another said, I follow Cephas, who was Peter, kind of this rock, this person that, 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 that was way at the top. And then some people just said, hey, I'm going to just trump you all. I follow Christ, all right? I win, you know, Jesus card, there you go. And so this church is divided and Paul writes to them, and he, he says, you guys, don't you understand? Look down in verse 12. He says, is Christ, is Christ divided? Is that how this works? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul puts all the focus on Jesus. Look down in verse 17. It says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. The gospel, the good news that Jesus died and, and rose again from the dead because God loves the world and he calls all people to himself. He wants to change everybody's life. Paul says, not with wisdom or eloquence. Least the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And he says the same thing in chapter 2. You've got to read it. Paul basically says, I'm not going to play the status game. If anybody could have played the status game, it was Paul. He had all the accolades from the Jewish world, but he also grew up in a Roman world, and he knew the Greek mind. He was trained under the foremost Pharisee of the day, and he could speak with power. We see him speaking in Acts. We see the letters that he wrote. He was a master of rhetoric. In fact, most of 1 Corinthians is in the style of rhetoric. He could have totally played the game, and he could have won, too, and he, and he says, nope. I'm not going to live that way. He chose to live in an antithetical way to the way that the world would live. Because it was all about the cross. It was all about the gospel for Paul. When it boiled down to it for Paul, it was all about Jesus. All about Jesus. Lakeside Church, it's all about Jesus. And I realize that there is a theological spectrum I realize that there is a philosophical spectrum. I realize that there is a spectrum on ecclesiology and how church should be done. But when it boils down to it, the thing that unites us is Jesus. 
In fact, I, I just want to do a little exercise. I did youth ministry for a lot of years, and so you got to kind of hear me. You need to play along or my feelings are going to be heard, all right? And so just play along a little bit. I, I want you in a moment, I'm going to count to three, and I want you to shout out your favorite sports team, okay? Let's just do this really quick. Ready? One, two, three. Okay, I heard a giant niner. I don't know what that is, a giant niner or something like that. Okay, how about your favorite color? Ready? One, two, three. Okay, didn't, I heard a lot of blue. We're getting more united. How about this? How about your favorite food? Ready? One, two, three. Oh, man, that was completely confusing. I had one gathering that half the gathering was pizza, all right? I don't know. They were going out that night for pizza or something. How about this? If you follow Jesus, just, just humor me in this. Shout out the name of your Savior. One, two, three. Jesus. It is Jesus that unites us. Never forget that. Because in the next 10 years, we will be challenged in the area of unity. In the next chapter, in chapter 3, Paul's going to call this church that he loves immature. And he's going to call them infants because of the divisions that existed among them. And then he'll say this phrase, which is beautiful. He'll say, you are God's temple. In the Greek, it's plural. I believe that individually. But Paul's talking to the church at this point. You are God's temple and the Holy Spirit lives in you. I could gladly speak for an hour just on tabernacle and temple. It's a beautiful theme. It's a motif that goes all the way through the scriptures. But in a nutshell, the temple was the place. And he says, you are the temple. And so Paul's saying the church is the place where the love and the power of God and the hurt and brokenness and pain of the world come together for the healing of of humanity. This is what unity will do for the church. And Paul says, when you mess with the temple, God does not like that. So stay unified. Work for it. Pray for it. Struggle for it. Enter into dialogue. It's okay to disagree. It's not okay to have division, is what Paul is saying. And he coaches the church and he confronts the church on this issue, the first of many issues that we are going to see over the next several weeks. And so I hope that you'll do this journey along with us. I think it's going to be helpful and it's going to be powerful for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful this morning for the power of your word and your spirit and the mystery of how they work together. And God, we know that you have called us into an important mission. And what a privilege. God, this life in Jesus is fascinating. And it's this adventure. And at the same time, it's difficult because we struggle with being almost. But God, we thank you that you do set us apart for this mission and that we're on this together. We're not alone in this. And that we have your guidance and your power and your help and that you are faithful all the way to the end. And so thank you for that. Thank you for the cross and that it boils down to Jesus. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.